Uh, I pray, Father, that you would take our time this morning to do exactly what we have sung about. Father, increase our faith. Lord, we are weak in faith. Lord, many times our hearts are hard. Father, many times we respond to what you want to say with skepticism. But I pray, Father, this morning, as you help me to be clear with your word, I pray you would help all of us to have ears to hear and hearts to understand. We thank you for the grace and mercy we have sang about through your Son. And now we pray, Father, that you would show that grace and mercy to us as we listen, Lord, to the preaching of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My sophomore year of high school... We had a day at our school that was called Career Day. So this is around 1997, uh, but this was uh, a day where the classes were more or less focused on what you wanted to be when you grew up. I was in technology class, and the teacher in that class handed out a sheet of paper. On that sheet of paper were three columns. The first column was a list of careers, so like teacher, mechanic, nurse, uh, a bunch of different ones. And the next column was what you needed to do to become one of those things. So four years of school, two years of certification, or uh, whatever it was, you went down that road. And then in the last column was a list of uh, of the salaries, the average salary of somebody who did that kind of work. Now, all over this paper was a particular word. On the board, I can remember so very clearly on the whiteboard in the front of the classroom was that same word. And then the lecture that the teacher gave that day or for that class period used a particular word numerous times. That word was the word success. And it was very clear that day that uh, the, the, the lesson that we were supposed to learn was that we were supposed to pick a career, do what was necessary, like go to college or, or uh, get certified or whatever it was, that we would do that, and then we would go out into that career and we would make money, and that would result in, church, success. That was the lesson of the day. Now, if we're honest... Everybody wants to be a success. Now, for most people, or I should say many people, they decide what they want to be when they grow up, and then they go off to college. And many times, for many, many people, they get there, and they take their first year of school, and they figure out, not what I want to do. And perhaps they begin to panic. Sometimes kids, before they get to college, begin to panic and think, I don't know what I want to do, and I need to know what I want to do so that I can be a church success. All right, and so then maybe you get through college and you start your career, and after a year and everything's no longer new, and you get into the monotony of getting up at 8 o'clock at every day and coming home at 4 o'clock every day, and it's no longer exciting, you wonder to yourself, is this job going to actually lead me to church success? Perhaps you get a little bit further in your life. Now it's romance. And the question you're asking yourself as you sit across sharing a plate of wings at Applebee's, is this relationship going to be a church? Maybe you get married. 
You have a baby. And you wonder if you're going to be a successful parent. And then there comes a point, as I've had many people say to me, you get to a point where you realize that there is more behind you than there is in front of you. And the worry you have in your mind is this. Have I been a church success? Today, Americans choose all manner of self-improvement in order or in the name of trying to be a success. They go to perhaps uh, meditation, weight loss. Let's go back to school. All in the name or of the goal of being a success. And many people will even do sinful things all in the name of success. Chapters 8 and 9 close out the story of Solomon here in Second Chronicles. It pulls us away from talking about the temple as it has for most of these first few chapters to highlighting two things in these final chapters about his life. First of all, his achievements, and then secondly, his splendor. Now, the writer of this book expects that you and I have remembered everything we've re- uh, read up to this point, specifically that the particular phrase has continued through First Chronicles, now into Second Chronicles, and that phrase is this, that the Lord his God, or the Lord their God, was with them. At the beginning of Second Chronicles, chapter 1, where it's all, all of Solomon's achievements were because the Lord his God was with him. You and I are to remember that. And here in this closing or this conclusion of Solomon's life, the point is pretty clear. You find the path of success as a result of serving God. That's the lesson of this conclusion of Solomon's life, that you find the path of success as a result of serving God. Now, why would the author bring that lesson forward? Well, remind yourself that the first readers of this book were the grandchildren of people who heard this from the prophets and the priests and responded to it with skepticism and contempt. They didn't believe that success came in service to God. So now here are their grandchildren trying to decide how to move forward after 70 years of captivity, and the author wants them to hear that the path to success is a result of serving God. The author wants them to know that this is true, and even that, he wants them to know why it's true. And this morning, that's what we're going to talk about. Why is this true? Why is the path of success a result of serving God? Three points for you this morning. Number one. Number one, service to God is where his people always find prosperity. Service to God is where God's people always find prosperity. Verses 1 through 6 here in chapter 8 is just a list of Solomon's activities concerning uh, uh, several cities. Now in verse 2, we're told that Huram, the king of Tyre, restores some cities to Solomon. Likely the idea here is that these cities, because they were in the northern section of Israel, and on the border with the king of Tyre, these cities were likely a form of collateral. Remember back in chapter 2, he wrote a a letter to Huram, ordering materials to build the temple. Well, these cities were likely a form of collateral until Solomon actually paid 
for the materials that he bought. And so the idea here is Solomon paid Hiram for what he got. Hiram released these cities back into Solomon's control. And we're told that as soon as he had control of these cities, he began building projects. And not only building projects, he began to move people there, relocate them into these cities. Then we're told that Solomon is able to conquer a section of land. Verse 3, we find out in that section of land there are several more cities. And we're told once again, once upon gaining control of these cities, Solomon goes through, as you see in the text, and begins to build them. He puts in them storehouses. That would be where you put all your crops. He put walls up and gates up. He, he made those cities functioning cities, probably with the presumption that he moved more people to those cities, and that there was this, uh, the idea, there's this economic boom. This is what happens when the economy is good, right? Buildings get built. Businesses start. Cities begin to grow. Well, the idea here is these cities that he got back from Hiram, and these cities that he got, got by conquering this region of land, they made up the northern part of Israel, or the most northern part of Israel, and the most southern part of Israel, meaning that Solomon now had control of all major trade routes going through that area. And then you get down to verse 6, and we're told not only was this happening in the north, not only was it happening in the south, but in fact, all of this was happening everywhere in Israel. The idea is, is this was one big economic boom. And all the prosperity that he was experiencing was right in line with the things that God had promised. God had told the people at at Mount Sinai that if they had walked with him, he would make their crops grow. He would give them economic success. Here in chapter 1 of 2 Chronicles, he gave that promise to Solomon. Solomon, if you walk with me, I'm going to make you an economic success. God made everything to prosper. Now, here's the problem. Because of the rampant false teaching of the prosperity gospel, many Christians have no idea what the connection is between God and the prosperity of his people. We can note a few things, though, in this text. First of all, we note here that there's a clear connection between this prosperity and the productivity of Solomon. Meaning that God gave this prosperity as his people worked. Prosperity theology teaches or separates the moral goodness of going to work from prosperity, whereas the Bible puts the two together. That the prosperity of God comes from the moral goodness of work, the command or the obedience to go to work, to be productive. We also note that the prosperity that we mention here is clearly by the grace of God. We know that they were in the land by grace. We know that they were delivered from Egypt by grace. We know Abraham was called out of Ur by grace. But then we go through the text, as I mentioned to you, as we go through this book, we're going to see God's people not do everything right. In fact, even in this chapter, we find out that Solomon has taken a foreign bride, which was forbidden. Yet God prospered. This was not about rule-keeping or moral perfection. This was about the grace of God. Whereas the false teaching of the prosperity gospel tells us that prosperity is all about your moral perfection. It's all about your rule keeping. 
But no, clearly here, the prosperity that Solomon gained was because of grace. But then the one more thing. And that is the lesson that we find through both of these books. And that is this, that the Lord, his God, was with him. That's a simple answer. Why was Solomon prosperous? Why did God's people prosper? Because the Lord, their God, was with them. And so let me land here for a moment and ask you the question. Do you believe that God is with his people? Do you believe he hears your prayers? Do you believe a God in a God that is very, very big, but gets very, very close? Or perhaps you struggle with asking God about or praying about your earache or your braces. Or maybe you want a job closer to home. Maybe you want a partner for marriage. Maybe you think God doesn't care about those trivial things. Maybe you're thinking, well, he's not close enough to give me the answer that I want. Maybe he doesn't care. But then the Bible asks you the question in Romans, doesn't the cross of Christ prove that God is interested in the prosperity of his people? Doesn't the Bible tell you that everything God could give you now after you have received Christ is valued as less than what you've gained in Christ? You trusted and you put your faith in Christ. And Ephesians tells you what? That you are now rich in the heavenly places. The Christian who wants the prosperity that God offers. The type of prosperity Jesus talks about when he says, ask anything in my name. Requires the believer to put their whole life in service to God. They will never know the joy. You will never know the joy of receiving the prosperity of God unless you trust that he is with you. And that you give every, even the most trivial things in service to him. So first of all, why is the path of success a result of service to God? First of all, because that's where God's people have always found their prosperity. You look around the world, and, and I say this physically, you look around the world and you look at those places where at one point evangelical or, or, or orthodox Christianity once took root, you will find the richest people on the planet. You will find the people who find, find the moral goodness of work. And you will find the people who are rich in Christ. Number two, the second reason that success is found or as a result of service to God. Number two, service to God is where his people gain security. Service to God is where his people always gain security. Now, verses 7 to 11 in chapter 8 moves to the surrounding problem. Basically, those people who are not God's people. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that as Israel conquered the land, they disobeyed a number of times. They were told to throw certain people out of the land to conquer them, to get rid of them, to abolish them in entirety. But Israel failed to do so several times. And as a result, the text tells us here that there are people left of the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. These are going to be hostile nations. These are going to be hostile cultures. But the text tells us something about them. They were all in tribute to Solomon. 
The idea there is, is in some way or another, they were paying Solomon for protection. In one way or another, they were paying or they were giving some subservience or service to Solomon or to the land of Israel in order for them not to be wiped out. The idea of one nation giving tribute to another nation is the idea that these people are not a threat. Now, they caused trouble in the past, and they're going to cause trouble in the future, but at this period of time, there's no trouble here. These people are not a trouble or a problem to the people of God. We also see here, though, that it's explained to us that one of the ways that they paid tribute to Solomon is they became a valuable source of labor. They were going to come, and it's not the idea of they were uh, slavery as we think of slavery as Americans. It's the idea of indentured servitude. They were going to pay tribute to Solomon. One of the ways they did that is providing labor for all of these building projects. And we're told because of this tribute they were in, the rest of the nation was able to focus on the military security. They were able to organize their army, able to keep themselves at a ready. The point of the text is clear. This was a group of people who were secure. They were safe. And then it closes by telling us that even Solomon moves the daughter of Pharaoh out of the city of David. And the idea there is that Solomon is trying to do everything with spiritual sensitivity. Now, just like the first readers of this book, how many different ways could you think of this morning that you don't feel secure? How about a coronavirus? An election year? Life changes, money problems, physical challenges, losses of any and every type. But this text is trying to tell us that the the security rested in God. The promises of victory over their enemies was the promise of God at Mount Sinai. The promise God makes to Solomon in chapter 1 was a promise that his enemies would be at peace with him. And all that security didn't rest on Solomon. It didn't rest on the people of Israel. It rested on God himself. How How do you know, having put your faith in Christ this morning, how do you know? Since you put your faith in Christ, that you are eternally secure. How do you know that? Because your security doesn't ride on you. Your security is in the fact that God is faithful to fulfill his promise to keep you secure. Now, one of the things I want to be clear about is this, is that when it comes to the security of God's people, this isn't just about feelings. This isn't just about being able to feel confident in the face of trials or have peace in difficult circumstances, although those are benefits. The service, the security that comes from being in service to God is actually quite tangible. But we don't like to admit it's true. Let me explain what I mean. If you go through the book of Proverbs, you find a number of these things. You find, for example, the man who's willing to work. The man who's willing to go out and get a job, the promise in Scripture is this, that that man will find himself financially more secure than the lazy man. The Bible says that children who are willing to obey their parents as the Lord commands finds themselves more socially secure than the rebel. The woman who is invested in the care and feeding of her husband and children, should she have some as God commands, finds herself more emotionally secure than the woman who has the affair. The young man who abstains from physical immorality 
as God commands, has a future that is far more secure than the man who gives himself to his lusts and his passions. All of these things are true. Yet even God's people treat these things with skepticism, and yet we're, and, and so we're, we're anxious, insecure, because we don't take these things at face value. You and I need to remember, he is who he says he is. He is invested in us. He has given us eternal security in Christ. And we have peace and security, tangible security, when we give our life in service to him. And number three, number three, service to God is where his people always experience order. Service to God is where his people always experience order. Closing text here, verses 12 to 18, we actually return to the temple in the act of worship. The point of verses 12 to 16 is to tell us that Solomon did everything with organization and skill. All the offerings were made every seven days, every month, every holiday, every four months. Even even some sacrifices that weren't even commanded. Solomon made sacrifices. He worshipped God. We're told that the priests and the Levites and their servants, all of that is set in order. So the preaching schedule is put up. The job descriptions are up. The, the, even the schedule for the doormen and the dishwashers are put up. We're told that it's so organized and so skillful that all the money coming into the temple was all accounted for. Nobody was skimming off the top. There were no accidental summaries in the bookkeeping. And so the idea in verse 16 is that Solomon did all of this With skill. And then verses 17 and 18 are a weird way to end this chapter, but but it's actually quite connected. We just get this simple account of basically Solomon getting paid for a trade deal. This is something that probably happened quite often. But the point of the text is clear, that there was an orderliness to this. There, There was organization. The money came in on time. Don't you like getting paid on time? There was order, even to the most basic parts of Israel's daily life. Now, the reason I use the word experience order is because most of us simply don't observe order. We experience it. For example, if you have a spouse who gets off of work at 3 and is always home at 4, when they do arrive at 4, you are experiencing order. But what happens when 5 o'clock pulls around and they're still not home? You start experiencing disorder. Lord willing, all of you are going to end this service. You're going to go out to your car. You're going to turn your key and the car is going to do what? It's going to start and you're going to experience order. Somebody might go out there, turn that key, and their car won't start. And guess what they're experiencing? Disorder. The idea here is this, when the creator-creature relationship is where it ought to be, there is order. Now, when that happens, we actually even get to observe some miracles. What do I mean by that? Well, think about men and women. Men and women, if you didn't know, are very different And that because they're different, there is a little bit of stress, sometimes difficulty, failures to communicate inside of a marriage. There's no natural order to marriage. And so you have strife and stress and so forth. But you take two people, 
who are in right relationship with God, you watch the miracle as God creates order in a marriage. And you watch two things that are very different become one flesh. The Bible talks about this miracle when it comes to the body of Christ. The church is not full of pastors and deacons. It also has accountants and lawyers. God brings the church together according to Ephesians chapter 3. The baker, the plumber, the electrician, the railroader, the gymnastics teacher, the nurse, the maintenance guy, the police officer, the receptionist. All a part of a church. Guess what? It's really easy to form a group of people when there's a common interest. The community of the church should not work. Too many different pieces. Too many different people. Yet it does. Because God brings order into it. You see, we don't only just see order. We experience it. And for the people of God, order is always experienced when our lives are in the right arrangement with God. When we are in service to Him. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, you should know that God's gift to you in Christ is still greater than, more, than any promise of more money or security or perfect control. We as Christians this morning have received more in Christ than any in the Old Testament, and these, but these things are still true. The path of success is still found or is still the result of serving God. His people still find their prosperity in trusting service to Him. They still find their security, not in being morally perfect rule keepers, but in trusting him. And not just feelings of security, but actual security that comes from following the light of his word. And God's people experience order when they invest in the lifestyle of the worship of God who creates order. That is the pathway to success. That is how you will find success. In service to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the trueness of your word. And I pray, Father, that we would take seriously these truths. The ultimate truth that the, any form of true and genuine success is found in service to you. And thank you, Father, for all the prosperity we have in Christ, all the security we have in Christ, and all of the order we have in Christ. And I pray you would take those truths and bring them into tangible evidence into our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.